that are alive, you are coming with me. What is this bullshit? Good Trash Genre Cat. I love you. I know. Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Hello everybody and welcome again to the Good Trash Honor Cast. We gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss at a film space course unless you're listening in January, in which we do our January Anti-Trash Marathon, which is the last film of the series we're looking at this week is Mudbound, directed by D. Reese. Uh, very, very excited to be talking about this. Um, I mistyped it earlier, Mud Pound, which uh, sounds like a weird sort of uh, niche of porn. Um, <laughs> Just down and dirty. Um, it's not that kind of show. It's not that kind of show. <laughs> not that kind of show. But, um, you know, Hollywood, if you're listening. Good I'm, trash nights. Oh, man. Okay. I'm pretty sure we've made that joke multiple times on the show. As soon as I said good trash nights, I was like, wait a second. I don't know. I don't know either. But, hey, let's introduce ourselves so people know who the devil you are. Go ahead and introduce yourself across the table from me. Sir, you. I am Dirk Diggler and... Uh, <laughs> Good trash nights. Hi, I'm Arthur Gordon. Me? I'm a saint. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, sir. Who are you? My name is Dalton Stewart, and I was 23 years a virgin when I met Arthur and Dustin in the spring of 2012. I lived with my parents in the house I grew up in. My world was small, and they were my rescuers from a life in the marshes. Alrighty, my name... That was my, that was my Carrie Mulligan. Yeah, yeah, that was your Carrie Mulligan. My name is Dustin Sells, and I'd be glad to see me, too. And uh, I am glad to be here hanging out with you guys as uh, we discuss uh, this great little gem from the Netflix. It's sort of a recall to our Netflix November marathon. We almost did this for Netflix November, and yeah. then, uh, as soon as this film started getting a lot of love, we were like, well, we got to do an anti-trash, because apparently yeah. this movie's great. It's better than... It's literally better than every single movie that Netflix we did is. in Netflix November. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. So we're going to talk more about that. Now, to warn you, dear listener, if you've never tuned into the Good Trash Genre cast before in your life, we want to say a couple things. First of all, welcome. Second of all... Hi, how's it going? Hi. We don't normally do movies this good. Yeah, this, Correct. This is way above our pay grade. But what we do is analysis on the show, not review, and that does mean spoilers. And so what we're going to do in order to warn you and give you a bit of a reprieve if you're just getting a little taste of what we're about, we have a quick synopsis from The Voice of Cinema and our thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews, which are spoiler-free. Then we play a game, which uh, may involve the mildest of spoilers of this film and perhaps some other films in its orbit. Then once we get down to business, and there'll be a little musical cue that tells you that we've gotten down to business because we'll be all wearing nothing. Nothing but our business socks. Correct. And at that moment, uh, all spoiler bets are off, and uh, you have been warned uh, regarding that. So without any further ado, Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema, let's hear that synopsis, please. I am going to use the Netflix synopsis because I like it a little more than the IMDb synopsis. So uh, disclaimer. Suck it, IMDb. What's smoking over there? Uh, Dalton is burning incense. Ah, okay. Got to set the mood. I got worried for a second. No, no, no. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. I'm just... there, have been a, there have been a run of uh, building fires in the last week or so, so that I'm a little paranoid. True. Two Mississippi <laughs> families, one black, one white, confront the brutal realities of prejudice, farming, and friendship in a divided World War II era. 
okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's it. That's what happens. Yep. Something like that. Something like that. So, I mean, obviously we should... With more dinosaurs, obviously. With, with, uh, yeah, the dinosaurs are great. So, yeah, if you don't want to find out that Jason Clark is, in fact, made entirely of mud... <laughs> it's, it's the... It's okay. You've it's got the, about 15 minutes before we get It's the Clay Praise fe- uh, prequel to uh, the Batman series. Well, yeah, yeah. The sequel is, is he becomes Dergolem and... Uh, <laughs> We're having fun. Takes out the KKK. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> I kind of want that movie now. God, yeah, especially after the end of this fucking movie. Oh, I want that movie so much. But uh, let's go ahead and talk about what we think about the movie we actually have in terms of our experience of it and whether we like it or not. Dalton, do you like Mudbound? And tell me why. Oh, so much. So, so very much. Um, We have talked a lot in the history of this show about effective voiceover. Uh, Just, you know, you watch enough movies, you're going to come across a lot with voiceover narration. Um, There is a right way and a wrong way to do it, and... What Mudbound succeeds so well in is its voiceover, it, which features prominently throughout the film. Um, and I think what makes it effective is that that shifting POV that we get, because it really does illuminate so much about every character in the film. Um, I, I believe it's Carrie Mulligan's character that gets the, the VO to start, but, I mean, it, it gets passed around to both her um, and... Uh, um, oh my god, everybody, everybody really. I was much. about to start listing them but as yeah. I, I feel like it's a man's voice to start with Start with Is it Jason Clark's? It, it, may, be. it may be I can't remember it's, It gets passed around a lot Which I, again, I think is the strength of the film um, On top of that wonderful VO And really going hand in hand with it Is the performances Because this film is filled with Just amazing performances from everybody in the cast. In case you have not checked out Mudbound yet or have forgotten, it's it's been a while since you watched it and you've forgotten just how deep this roster is, I'm going to go ahead and just really recap uh, for you. You got Jason Clark and Carrie Mulligan, Rob Morgan and Mary J. Blige, Jason Mitchell, Jonathan Banks, Garrett Hedlund, and that's just like the top six or seven people. I mean, the, the cast in this is just so incredible. I, I really do want to give a special attention to Mary J. Blige, who I had remembered hearing was in this movie and then totally forgot and spent the entire movie going, man, why does, why does she look so familiar? Why, why does Florence look so familiar to yeah. me? And about halfway through, I went, holy shit, that's Mary J. Blige. She, she is so good in this movie. Phenomenal. Yeah, she is really she, phenomenal. She's honestly really one of the standout performances yeah. in the film. But, I mean, everybody's great. Jason Mitchell, who uh, had his big breakout uh, last year, year before last, in uh, the Straight Outta Compton movie playing okay. Eazy-E. That was his big breakout. He's amazing in this as well. Um, him and Garrett Hedlund have a couple of just really spectacular scenes together. Yeah, they're great. Uh, the film just so seamlessly flits between so many different topics, whether it's uh, poverty, whether it is agriculture, whether it is racism, whether it's uh, post-traumatic stress from, you know, combat. It, it, it Just so many things get touched on with so much deft and grace and care that you really just get swept up because everybody in the film is doing such a good job of helping weave these emotions and weave these themes throughout the story which I'm a big fan of this kind of story. I really do love this kind of, you know, decades-long chronicle. And that kind of film can go bad so easily. 
and to see a film do those things that I like so well. I've heard it said, and Dustin mentioned this on the show last week, I think, either right after we got done recording or actually on the air, he mentioned that the, this film has been kind of called a visual audiobook, or maybe that was Arthur that... No, was, yeah, was that's, I'd read that, yeah. <clears throat> and it's a very astute observation, honestly, um, because a lot of the film is just watching beautiful landscapes while you're listening to voiceover, which can be irritating. I mean, it's irritated me in other films, but way, way, way back when we did Days of Heaven, I found that very irritating. And incorrectly, you well, found that irritating. Well, that, that's a conversation for another day. What works here that didn't work in Days of Heaven for me and, and the, the voiceover in that Malick film is the voiceover is so ponderous that it seems disconnected from what's going on. The voiceover in Mudbound is always about what you're seeing on screen but is ponderous in a way that keeps it from being repetitive because if you get too much voiceover just telling you what you're seeing, you're like, we don't, we don't need this. We're watching the movie. But the voiceover is almost always acting as a bridge between uh, scenes or a bridge between uh, character POV shifts. Um, really effectively, that's how it's used a lot, is one character who you've been following will narrate their feelings on another character, and then we'll follow that character for a while. So just structurally, it just works so well. And Deerys' photography in this film, and her and her cinematographer, uh, whose name I don't have in front of me right now, just photographed this so beautifully. I, it, it really is a shame that Netflix picked this up, and I only say that because it would have been great to see this film uh, on a big screen because it's yeah. so pretty to look yeah. at. Um, and I think that's enough for right now. I mean, I think all the other things I really love about this film, we can kind of save when we crack it open and do some analysis on it. But I just, yeah, those performances, that VO, and that photography, I just, whoo, buddy, I, I, what a film. I, I was not ready for this Netflix movie to kick me in the heart and really just enrapture me as much as it did. Alrighty, well thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what did you think about Mudbound? I love this movie. Um and and to kind of echo and kind of compliment some of the things Dalton said, I, I don't know that I've ever seen a, a director take something like this and so seamlessly connect the narrative strands. The transitioning between point of view as as Dalton mentioned is so seamless None of the plots ever feel like they get dropped or lost. Like everything gets tied back together. It comes back to perfectly. It's so fluid in in its presentation with the voiceover that it, it, it's unlike a lot of other films I've ever seen, especially dealing with narration like this. And, and I think it's fantastic in, in that sense. And, and the performances are all standout. It's hard to, you know, Mary J. Blige is great. And then you're like, oh, Carrie Mulligan's great. And Oh, yeah. Garrett Hedlund does a wonderful job here as as Jamie. In, this movie made me miss Garrett Hedlund, yeah. which is uh, – it got popular. I kind of pick on him for a little bit, I feel like. Yeah. And I don't see why because I've always really liked him, and this movie reminded me. Yeah. Uh, and and so it's hard to kind of pick that one standout. I, I love I love uh, the uh, gentleman that plays Hap. Um, I forgot his name. Um, oh, the guy from – Rob Devil. Morgan. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Rob Morgan does a wonderful job uh, as Hap. I think – these are such fascinating characters that are put on screen and it's just balanced so gracefully. And I, and I appreciate D Reese's effort here and, and she does a great job. And, and speaking to her, uh, uh, cinematographer who is uh, Rachel Morrison, who also worked on dope and Fruitvale station. Oh God. Well, yeah, there you go. That's yeah. why this movie's so pretty. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it is shot so beautiful and, and the use of voiceover, not only to just kind of, um, kind of connect those dots, but there are so many moments where they're just kind of almost throwaway moments of, of dialogue, but they still work and they still help elaborate. And I think that's part of, 
you know, it, you know, it's not so ponderous. It's just kind it's, of, Oh, it's always illuminating character. Yeah. yeah. And I, I appreciate that quite a bit. Um, and so I, I love it for all of those reasons. And, uh, you know, I don't know that there's much else to say kind of like Dalton. I, I think from a review standpoint at all, if this movie is a standout because of its direction and its cast and, and how effortless it is almost. And everybody has a great dynamic with one another. Everybody plays really well off of each other. Everybody interacts really well with each other uh, between Jason Clark and Carrie Mulligan or Jason Clark and Garrett Hedlund or Garrett Hedlund and um, uh, Jason Mitchell. Like they all have a great chemistry and, and, and a unique uh, bond on screen and it works. I, I feel like all the pieces align for this one to, to play out beautifully. Yeah, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. And, of course, I have to heartily agree. I think this movie's great. I mean, it's really, really an achievement. And it is too bad that we didn't see a whole lot of love for this in the Golden Globes. Uh, at time of recording, we haven't had Oscar announcements yet. Although, um, odds are, because of its Netflix distribution, yeah. not going to probably have a high chance of showing I know uh, the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild are really big on it. And so... Maybe. We may get some acting nominations, especially for Mary J. Blige. I could easily see her She's getting a nomination good. here. Um, especially for someone who's, you know, kind of ex- inexperienced as an actress. I, think. I mean, yeah, she's, she's done some acting, but I mean, she is going toe to toe with people who have been in the game for a long time. Yeah. I mean, she, she keeps up with everybody. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, not her first profession. Her first profession is as a musician, but God, she just kills it every scene she's in. Yeah, she's great. Um, everybody is great, as you guys have already said, and I'll not reiterate all of that. Um, and as you guys were saying, it's beautifully shot. Uh, what's, what's really amazing, uh, the use of voiceover does a thing that has uh, been sort of the, uh, you know, the standard problem with uh, novelistic adaptation uh, when it comes to film, is to find that way into those interior monologues, those various interior monologues, and to find a way to communicate those things in a cinematic way that doesn't become like unwieldy and sort of cumbersome and wooden and boring. And uh, this is absolutely able to do all of those things. It's not unwieldy. It's not cumbersome. And I do feel like I have a strong understanding of just the sort of commitment that um, uh, Harry is that is that isn't Henry 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 yep. has to his brother. I have I have, I have this I have a firm understanding of uh, Jamie's commitment. Uh, to family and then just uh, running from his own demons. I understand uh, the various characters and their motivations uh, throughout. And I, I, that's so lacking sometimes uh, in these kind of movies. And so this film is um, not just picking a lane, as oftentimes is the case uh, with this kind of novelistic thing. We'll just pick a character and we're just going to follow them. Um, rather, it does indeed follow all of them and does so deftly, and, uh, which is just a rare thing to experience uh, cinematically. And so for my money, uh, just in terms of its ability to tell story in that way, it is, it's really an achievement. It's a really, really great film. And so I like it a lot, too. And again, for the same reasons that you guys have already stated. So there you go, dear listener. There are biases uh, concerning Mudbound. Uh, we are very, very pro uh, regarding it. And we also want to tell you that we're having this conversation right now, not just so that we can talk amongst ourselves and somehow throw it out in the ether of the Internet, but rather so that we can have a conversation with you. So, uh, Dalton, tell us how they can participate in that conversation in that inter-ethernet. I will do those things that you've asked me to do. Dustin, listener, if you are uh, wanting to, to talk to us online, uh, it's pretty pretty easy. Uh, first and foremost, we are on Twitter at good underscore trash. Uh, that is probably the, the most effective way to, to let us know something, uh, You know, whether you want to add us or hit us in the DMs. 
Um, just let us know what you got going on. Um, we'll be around. Uh, we are also on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash GTM. We do not use that nearly as much. Um, so, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but we're over there. Um, we also have a, an email address if you want to do it privately and you've got something, you know, quite extensive you want to say or talk about, uh, you can get us at goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com for that longer, lengthier feedback. And, yeah, all of that feedback, if, if you are so inclined to have it read on the show, you let us know and we'll uh, we'll do that for you. Um, if you just want to, you know, shoot the shit, let us know. We're, we're easy to get a hold of. Um, if you are interested in helping us grow the show, if you, if you like the show and you want to see it spread in the world, honestly, the easiest way to do that is just tell somebody you like. Um, we've been talking, I've been doing, I'm going to say I, I'm not going to speak for them. Uh, I have lately been discouraging you listener from, uh, using the internet and I'm going to go ahead and stand by that still. It's, it's just a rough place to be right now. We're starting out 2018, uh, on the heels of a pretty spectacularly shitty year, um, globally. So, and the internet has not helped with that. So, you know, just, uh. Tell somebody you like uh, about the show. You don't have to, to get online to uh, to engage with us or to uh, spread your thoughts on this this program. Talk to your friends. Um, if you, you do want to do that online word spreading, you can do that on uh, Twitter and Facebook if you want. But you could also just rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio or however you, you get this in your feed. Um, that is a really easy way to help the show's visibility is just to rate, review, and subscribe to it on your desired uh, platform. Uh, last but certainly not least, uh, if you like this show enough to give us money, uh, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash GTM. Um, I know we did that a while back. If you've taken a break from listening to us and are just now joining us again, we did deactivate the Patreon for a while. We were getting ready to dismantle it. And it occurred to us that there were ways to reward you for your patronage that we were just going to be better at and that we were going to be able to deliver on. So there's not a lot of uh, physical goodies over there for you, but we have a ton of listener... what words are hard? Patreon Sorry. exclusive. Content. My brain just popped. Thank you, Dustin. We have a ton of Patreon exclusive content over there. I say ton. There's a little bit right now. There will be a lot more. Yeah, it is going to be a regular fixture. That's right. The January bonus content went up today uh, as we record this episode, and so uh, yeah, get into that and see what it's about. Yeah, we got we got lots of fun stuff in the pipe for you on that bonus content, and then uh, we got fun goodies like uh, we'll. Uh, We'll curate uh, a grab bag of uh, bargain bin DVDs for you, stuff like that. So uh, we've restructured it. We've made it uh, easier for us. We've made it hopefully more fun for you. So uh, go check that out if you are interested in that. And um, that's it. I I did the thing that you asked me to do, Dustin. Hey, thanks for doing that thing. Um, I'm tired of doing that thing. I think now it's time to play the game. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. And we're back, and we're going to play our game this week, which is very, very uncreative. What we're going to do is rank our anti-trash marathon. That's right, ranking the anti-trash marathon of 2018, brought to you by Mudbound. Mudbound, is it better than Racerhead? Is it better than E2 Mama Tambien? Find out soon, which is now. (laughs) Yeah, after 250 episodes, it's kind of hard to keep coming up with games. God, especially for something like this. Here's here's what's really wild is we're you know we're not the only film podcast that tries to do a game every episode. I mean, Film Spotting does their top five. That is so much. That's even harder than what we do because it's got to be locked into a top five every week. Yeah, like that's even that's even harder. Just try and come up with individual games. Jesus, there are some weeks where uh, we're like, let's do this. No, we've done that. Let's do that. Yeah. Well, we did a variation on that. 
it is difficult. So yeah, we make it a little easy on ourselves sometimes the marathons. But I don't know. I, I like ranking things. Yeah. Ranking things is fun. So um, I guess since there are going to be the same five movies all the way across four the board, movies. four movies across the board, uh, we might as well just just hear your rankings, your rankings, and my rankings, and just do it that way. What do you think? Yes. Yeah, I'm fine with that. All right, Arthur, what are your rankings? At number four is the Charles Lawton thriller, Night of the Hunter. Good movie. Uh, which I think is a solid And here's the thing about this ma- marathon, right? All these movies are great. All these movies are amazing, yeah. So it's not like this, you know, this kind of, sh- unlike Denzel, where Book of Eli was obviously the bottom barrel or what happened to Monday in Netflix November. All these could easily interchange. But Night of the Hunter was very good. I didn't love it uh, quite as much as you, you two gentlemen did, but I did appreciate it quite. And it's beautiful to look at. Um, and, and outside of the stylistic stuff, you know, the, the stuff with the serial killer and some of the stuff that Lawton's doing is interesting, but you know, part and parcel, it's pretty standard thriller. Um, but it's just done really well and it elevates the genre, I think. And that's, you know, the key to, to that film. Uh, and so number four, I'm going to say nine of the hundred at number three, I'm going to put E2 Mama Tambien, uh, the Quran's, uh, pick. Um, it's, I, I love that movie. It's so sweet and so much heart and so much melancholy, I guess, I guess. and uh, with great performances. And there's just something kind of enlightening and, and endearing about it. And I think it speaks greatly to youth and childhood. And uh, I think Koran does a great job there, especially coming back out of his roots, not, not out of his roots, but coming back out of the studio for several years where he made a couple of studio films to come back and make something that kind of different. And, and so uh, obviously personal. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's it's a, it's a beautiful movie. Uh, at number two is a uh, is Eraserhead. Um, Eraserhead to me is I I was a bit hesitant to watch it. I I I'd kind of built it up in my head to be something much worse than it was going to be, but it's so fun and so bonkers. And and David Lynch's craftsmanship is so masterful. And it, you hate seeing a guy make a perfect movie like right out the bat, like. Yeah, it's it's so frustrating. Yeah. It's so frustrating to yeah. see a, a, a dude who's like 28, 29, 30 when that movie gets made. Yeah. It's like, fuck off out of here. And, and, and he doesn't even have the uh, consideration to do an Orson Welles and be considerably worse from that point forward. No, he no. just keeps getting better, yeah. Yeah. which is insane. And, and for him to hold that momentum over mm-hmm. the course of what, five years of filming mm-hmm. is unheard of. And it is fascinating film it's a great film and, and i'm glad dustin made us watch it and i'm glad we watched it together because it is a fun time uh but for me number one it is it's d reese's mudbound well and just like we you were just saying about lynch this is only d reese's third feature yeah and she's taking a pretty long break at whether you know and by her yeah. own choice or because just you know making movies is hard especially if you're not a white dude it's hard to get funding for movies yeah this is her third feature and no, it's so good nobody i i from what i read this almost went unpurchased at Sundance. Wow. Yuck. Yeah. What a bunch of idiots. Yeah. A lot of producers passed on this. What a bunch of fucking morons. Yeah. This movie to me, and, and so much of what I said in the review, the way it's constructed, because I've never seen a narrative kind of handled in this way with that kind of, it, it is such, it it retains so many of those literary pieces because of the voiceover and the way it's presented. And I've never seen yeah. a, a, you knew, a. And you normally hear that as a dig. Yeah. But it, it yeah. works. It's almost poetic in the way it's put together. And, and, and to me, that works. And, you know, it's wonderful. And it, and it could have been great on a big screen. And it would have looked beautiful on a big screen. And it's better directed than probably any, I would argue, most of the movies this year. I think it's arguably one of the best directed films of the year. No, oh, I would 100% agree. Um, 
And so I, 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 and it's, you know, it's two hours and 15 minutes and I could have stayed in this world for another two hours. It, it's fascinating. The world that that's built here. And, and I hated to see it end and it was very moving and endearing. And so Mudbound is going to be my top pick today. Alrighty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Let's hear your rankings, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Well, I mean, similarly to Arthur, yeah. I mean, these are all being last on this list is uh, not a list to be. You know, it's good company to be in. So, with that said, we are going to just glad to be nominated. Exactly. We're going to start with Itumama Tambien down at the bottom, uh, which again, a fantastic film, and I'm echoing everything Arthur said. I really love um, everything that's going on there. It's, it's simultaneously so precious and so sad which is kind of a really hard tonal balance to navigate and that movie just does it with such deft like uh, just as a deft dance of tone that's really really impressive to me and uh again uh, almost all of the movies we did for this anti-trash marathon were first time uh, watches for me um with the exception of my next pick which is going to be night of the hunter which only gets locked in at number three uh just because I had seen it before. I mean, honestly, the joy of discovering these other three films uh, is the only reason that Night of the Hunter is not higher, uh, because it probably, at the end of the day, is my personal favorite among these four films. But, yeah, I'd seen it before. Um, And as Arthur said, everything it's doing is things we've seen done elsewhere. Uh, But, yeah, it just does everything so well. And as we talked about on that episode uh, that was recorded on Dustin's cell phone, Gosh! Yep. Just want to make sure I got. I just want to make sure we got one shot in. Um, Charles Lawton. One does, shot Dalton. That's how I do it. Charles Lawton did one movie. One shot Lawton. Uh, he he fucking comes out out of the theater, comes out of screenwriting, makes this bitch in movie, and never makes a film again. And it, it just blows my mind. Uh, it really just complete. I'm a little obsessed with the Night of the Hunter. If I'm being perfectly honest, because it is. So strange that a movie could be that good, and then that the the person who helped bring it to life would just never make another film is really kind of just strange and wonderful, and I love it for all the things uh, that make it that weird, strange, beautiful movie. Um, next up is D. Reese's Mudbound, which uh, I'm so glad we decided to do because I probably would not have made time for a two-hour movie on Netflix. I mean, when, I'm, when I'm at home and I decide to watch something on Netflix, it's very rarely going to be something that's over two hours. So the fact that we chose to do it for Anti-Trash makes me so happy because I would have missed out on this incredibly remarkable film that, as you will hear next episode, became a very late-in-the-game contender for one of my favorite films of 2017. Um, so I like it that much, and we're going to talk about it more, so we'll, we'll leave it at that. And finally, number one... David Lynch's Eraserhead, which, as Arthur has said, is just completely bonkers in all the right ways. Everything you want out of a weird movie, David Lynch gives you, and so much more. And I think that is what puts it at number one over these other films, is it is singularly bizarre. There are no other movies like Eraserhead. There just aren't. I mean, there's a handful. Yeah, there's other weird, arty movies. Eraserhead kind of stands alone as simultaneously a weird 
midnight cult movie that's also an art house movie that's also a comedy that's also a body horror movie that's also a film about existential crises that also has dancing chickens i don't (laughs) fucking understand this movie and i never will and it's great i have no idea what eraserhead is about and yet i love it um i mean we spent an entire episode, uh, our episode of Eraserhead, when we did analysis, if you skip that episode, it was basically just us trying to figure out what the movie's about, which, yeah. I mean, that's, that's fun film analysis. To no, to no success. To have, yeah, to be able to, to really spend hours talking about a film and know less about it than when you started. Um, because every time you think you've got a handle on Eraserhead, you'll talk to somebody else who has a really good argument for why it's about something completely different from what you think it's about. Um, and, and yeah, you could do that with any movie. You can do that with Mudbound. I mean, there's there's a lot going on in Mudbound, um, but man, just the the absolute unfathomable weirdness of Eraserhead. It just you know you don't know any of those names. Yes, all the people in that movie were in other movies, uh, and yet I would believe it if you told me they were all aliens. I, I would believe it if you told me that that movie was a cultural artifact from a lost civilization, and that was how they told visual stories. I hope in 100 years, all movies are eradicated except Eraserhead, and that is the one history. Can you imagine if we try to recreate cinema a 1,000 years from now, if Eraserhead was our only template for what movies looked like? Awesome. Holy shit, dude. Be, oh, my God. So those are my rankings of the Anti-Trash 2017 Marathon. Dustin... Um, I've already got yours figured out in my head, but I'll let you tell the nice listeners uh, yourself. Uh, sure. Well, I mean, number last for me is uh, Mudbound, and that, again, is no slight. I really, really like this movie, and I really like its approach to narrative. Uh, I do find it a little conventional compared to the other films, and so that's that's a little bit of why I, I it tends not to fit my wheelhouse as much. And I, I, I knew I knew that was going to be at the bottom of your list, and I knew that was going to be why. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not weird enough for you. It's not weird enough for me. I mean, really, it is, and it is... Um, it's a little bit too much of the social problem film a little bit for me, a little bit. We'll talk about that more in analysis. Uh, I think I, you're wrong. No, uh, well, I, I would say it's got ambiguity, and it's got layers, and it does it very, very well. But I just tend to not, you know, the movies that are about the things, I, I, they, I get that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. We'll, we'll crack it open more in analysis. And, uh, but that being said, to talk about those things at this time and again, it is no slouch to be on this list at all, Mm-mm, right? No. And so I really like Mudbound a lot, but I also don't think Mudbound is a movie I'm going to keep coming back to either. Totally fair. And so, uh, although I do like it. Uh, next is a movie that I have come back to quite a bit, and that's Itumama Tambien. I uh, love that movie so much. I love Quran. I love everything that's going on, the performances. I do love the way in which uh, it makes use of voiceover as well, in which it does so in terms of juxtaposition. Yeah. Irony. Oh, man, I, I love... Yeah. Ooh, talk about two wonderful voiceovers between Mudbound and Itumama. Right. Jeez. Like, yeah. And both just doing such different things. Yeah. Voiceover. Yeah, so instead of saying, okay, we're going to look a little deeper into what's going on with those characters, these uh, voiceovers in Itumama Tambien get a little bit more global. And uh, I like that as well. And yeah. I, I mean, I, and I don't prefer one over the other necessarily, but I just, I like the way in which this story is about that, but all at the same time, we're dealing with the global capitalism and the way it's uh, wreaking its wrath upon upon uh, Mexican society uh, there in the early 2000s. And so that's interesting to me, and it's a movie I, I've come back to many, many times, and I just dig it all kinds. Uh, number next for me, uh, number two would be... <laughs> number next. Number next. You're you know? such a sweet boy. Well, I mean, number whatever. No, that's I just I lo- that's so cute. I no, love you. Number next is uh, Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter. Love that movie. It's a great movie. I love its gothic sort of structure. Hell yeah, baby. Uh, and I, I love the ways in which it sort of plays with some of those basic understandings of Americanism. 
that that's what I find to be most interesting about the film is that as an international director is approaching this American subject, that uh, there's an interesting way in which that distance begins to speak to it. I think uh, I think also Charles Lawton's own homosexuality speaks to that as well, and I just I really really enjoy uh, that and uh, the conversation it has with sort of American Protestantism and uh, just uh, the the, uh, the Great Depression. And all that stuff just works really, really well for me. I just, I like that movie a lot. See, and that's, uh, as we will talk about very shortly, that's what I like so much about Mudbound. Well, I like those things about it too. And we'll, we'll get there. So again, it's, it's, it's like, you know, you're ranking these and we're talking like increments of decimals of percentages oh, yeah. of points. Right? Yeah. yeah. What, what's better? A great, a great piece of pizza or a great burrito? Like fucking, yeah. I will all wake up tomorrow and Can change I, our minds. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but number last, forever and for always for me, will always be Eraserhead. I mean, you know, number last or number one, number first, uh, however you want to say that. I, I love Eraserhead. It's one of my favorite movies. I love David Lynch. I love everything he does. Uh, he's just been one of my favorite filmmakers since I've sort of gotten into this game of film analysis and paying attention to these things. And he does knock it out of the park first time out. It is beautifully shot in that black and white cinematography. And the way he's able to just use those darks, and, I just it's amazing. It's, it's Alan Rickman coming out of the gate with Hans Gruber. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's just like, what? The, who? Who are you? Right? How did you do this all of a sudden? And uh, it is just so weird and surreal and just bizarre, but also so very uh, personal, and it's, it's got a real emotional core to it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's unusual the way in which they're able to do this sort of weird sort of soap opera level acting humor on top of these crazy art house aesthetics, on top of, again, this, this really sort of philosophically deep uh, meditation on fatherhood and parenting and just what it means to be a human being in an industrial society – all of that stuff, you know, in this nexus, you know, black hole of terror that is uh, Eraserhead is just an amazing experience, and I couldn't recommend it more. And the sound design, just the sound design, just yeah. done, right? Yep. And uh, and as you see, my rankings tend to see – you tend to see that I, I like something that is a little bit more um, – I guess my in terms of my flavors, those things which break convention more. The more yeah. it breaks convention, the more I'm in, and uh, that's that's more it for me than anything. And so that's sort of the way those rankings work. And I think you probably have a peer into uh, a peering view into all of our souls now, as you've seen how we've ranked these movies because we like them all. But how we would rank them might say a little bit more about who yeah. we are than about anything else. Well, man, you're just really laying the groundwork for that next episode, aren't you? So um, yeah, <laughs> foreshadowing, foreshadowing. So there you go, dear listener. That. That's our rankings of the Anti-Trash Marathon. We'd love to hear yours and your rationale behind it uh, and uh, how you want to put Eraserhead way down at the bottom and never want to see it ever in the history of ever. Uh, tell us why. You'll be wrong, but we'd like to hear it anyway. And uh, Or about whatever else you'd like to say about the films uh, that we've discussed over the course of this marathon. But we are done with this. we got to move on because it is time, guys. It is time to get down to business. It's business. And we are back, and we are wearing nothing but our socks, and so you know it's time to get down to business. Um, Arthur is currently brushing his teeth, but that's also very important. It is. I took out the recycling, uh, which also is not part that of the business. That is not part of the foreplay at but all. But it's very important. And Dustin does not have his... Uh, 
after work uh, team sport tomorrow. So I, I do not, but I have a team building T-shirt on, and I'm very glad to be here uh, with you all discussing Mudbound. Inside jokes, inside jokes. I love it. All right, so uh, there's so much we could talk about. Let's just talk about um, the multi-perspectival view that we have. Here. Is that a real word? Multi-perspectival? I think so. Okay, it cool. is now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm game for it. There's just, a Wikipedia entry right now. You guys have English it. degrees, and I don't, so I was just double-checking. I think so, yeah. The, the nice thing about it, English is you can make any word a word. You know what? That's really true. All uh, the all they're all made up, don't I, you? Man, that's my thing. I'm, I get so annoyed when people like are harping about uh, uh, certain grammatical rules. It's just like, wait, it's a Germanic language using Latin grammar. We can do whatever we want. It's arbitrary sign, man. Yeah, it's a dumb language. Ar- ar- arbitrary signifier. Rather. Oh. Anyway, yeah, mul- multiple <laughs> perspectives. My saucer coming in. <laughs> no, okay, nobody cares about this. Oh man. All right. So hey, so we got lots of perspectives, right? We got Kerry Mulligan's perspective. We've got the two brothers' perspective. We've got the family's perspective of uh, the, the sharecropping slash tenant farmers. Yeah. Uh, Does anybody there. know the difference between sharecropping and tenant farming? Because I tried to do some research on it, and it was unclear. What how much of a distinction there is. I will speak out of school. Okay. Okay. I will speak out of school. I'm not knowing at all. But my understanding is sharecroppers are um, farming land for somebody else, and the profits are split in percentages in terms of sales. That's my understanding, too. Tenant farmers, on the other hand, are simply renting the land. And the space, and they get and they to pay keep... a, they pay a fat flat fee, and whatever money they make, you know whether they, they do keep... really well or do they, they they keep it all. Because Hap refers to himself as a share tenant, but it does seem as though the arrangement is that um, Jamie um, and his family keep all the crops and distribute the profits. It does seem that way, yeah. So, um, but that's my understanding, and I am okay. Know, neither a farmer nor a farmer's son. Um, here, here's the thing: I, I come from a family of sharecroppers, so I really should know, and I just don't. Um, and I, I, before we get into those multiple perspectives, or I guess to help us get there, I will talk about that. Well, it's just how the robber barons ho- own the means of capital yeah. and they're able to keep people down. That, that's Watching this film... Um, that means was, of production, excuse me. I knew what you meant. I think the listener did too. Watching this film, what really sucked me in was that connection. I mean, obviously, I, I don't know if you've seen a picture of me, listener. I'm a white dude. Uh, my family's white, uh, but my grandmother... Uh, my maternal grandmother, uh, her parents and their parents, and I don't know about further back than that, but I know at least those two generations were sharecroppers uh, in rural Oklahoma. And that is just a part of my family history that I grew up knowing. I don't really – nobody in my uh, on either side of my family kept very good records uh, as far as who was where. And, you know, we're not really a genealogy family. But that's just part of the mythos of our family, and that's something that, you know, I look at these pictures of these – People who are, you know, pr- look prematurely elderly, you know, looking in their 60s when they're in their early 40s um, and wa- looking at these pictures of homes that are barely put together with sod. And I just think, God, what a terrible time to be alive. Yeah. And then you see Mudbound and you realize, for me, just how hard that life could be and also how much easier it probably is to navigate that economy if you're white, how much cultural capital, how much more social mobility your whiteness allows you as sharecroppers. Because by not that much longer, by the 60s, 
that profession had dried up and they moved to, you know, urban centers and started working in machine plants and stuff. And, and I'm so glad you bring up the, the notion of cultural capital. It's Pierre, Pierre Bourdieu is the, uh, the sort of a sociologist slash thinker that uh, came up with the concept. And it is this idea that your capital is not just your wealth. It is also position based on race, yeah. position based on education, position based on your ability to have a conversation about films, that you would have a certain cu- uh, cultural cachet. You'd have like bank in your wallet regarding yeah. conversation in social circles especially if you're hanging around with us, if you know more about movies, right? Or whatever it is that you have me talking about. That that capital itself is not just uh, measured in terms of wealth. Which I think is a really nice way to circle back into the multiple perspectives that yes. got to start on this train of thought. Because what these perspectives give us is a really kind of wonderful picture on how easy it is for people who should be cooperating with one another to pit themselves against each other. Jamie sees himself as this this robber baron. He sees himself as this, you know, this man pulling himself up by his bootstraps, when in reality, he is doing just as rough as everybody else on this farm. Uh, ja- Jamie's family and Hap's family. You mean Henry. He means Henry. I said, I keep saying Jamie. You're right, yeah. Henry. Jason Clark's character. Yeah. Uh, up in, him and his wife are both college educated. Yeah. And says, hey, I, I know we don't have to, but I decided to buy a farm because my dad sold the farm that was supposed to be mine, and I wanted to be a farmer when I was a kid. Yeah. And completely upends their life. And it isn't very long before he realizes that he does not have the capital to navigate this rural Delta area because the house, this nice house that they're supposed to be yeah. renting, got sold out from underneath him. And he realizes he does not understand this world. Who does understand this world? Hap and Florence. They know this world. Well, and Pappy does too. Yeah. Well, and that's... In in a weird... In a fucked up way. Yeah. Yeah. Pappy knows the game. That is exactly the reaction of my niece, by the way, to Pappy. Yeah. You've quoted her. Yeah. Well, and that's a real shame because Jonathan Banks is such a a sweet man. Yeah. Uh, I really love Jonathan Banks a lot and seeing him be such a terrible character was unpleasant. Yes. Um, We'll we'll talk more about uh, the depictions of racism in this film later, but the, the one scene that sticks out to me about these perspectives is... Um, when Carrie Mulligan's character, um, Laura, Laura, thank you, is telling Henry, hey, just lend happy your mule, dude. Like, what are you doing? You're busting his balls about having to rent your mule because he had to put his down. Just lend him the mule. After he broke his leg fixing your barn. Yeah. yeah. Just lend him the mule. We're cooperating together. But... It is that social capital that mm-hmm. um, Henry gains from his whiteness makes it impossible for him to see that him and Hap are two sides of the same coin. They're oh, both, yeah. They are both guys with families they're trying to support through, yeah. their, through their physical labor. And I think that is really what's so great is that Florence and Laura build this friendship together. Yeah. Uh, and Jamie and... Um, uh, well, they're mirrors of each Ron, other. Ron Sell, yeah. yeah. Also build that relationship later in the film. Yeah. But earlier, yeah, we see Florence and Laura, and you're absolutely right, Arthur. They are mirrors of each other. But they have much less capital themselves as women as well. Exactly. So it's, yeah. got, it's got that nuance. And I, I think that's a big part of why that relationship works so well is it be, the, the lack of capital gained from being a man in this world or uh, any world, really, at uh, in certain parts of the world. Um, that lack of capital allows them to see things that... Uh, Henry just doesn't see. Yeah. Uh, and even Hap doesn't see. It's hard for Hap to understand, like, why are you hanging out with this white lady? Like, he's, you know they suck, right? And she's like, well, yeah, they do, but we're moms. Yeah. Right. We, it's just something like, I can't, I see her suffering because she can't take care of her kids right now and she needs yeah. my help. And there, there is a beauty to those multiple perspectives yeah. because 
it allows you so much insight into the inner life of these characters. Well, Florence has got this devastatingly beautiful line where she starts to take on this sort of nanny role uh, towards Laura's children. Mm-hmm. And, oh, I love this scene. And she starts, mm. she starts talking about how um, she felt like sh- her mom was sharing her love and like she felt somehow cheated because her mother did the same sort of thing. Yeah. And then she realized that by taking care of these other children, it was in turn taking care of them. It was yep. getting them prestige and position, cultural yeah. and actual financial capital, and that it was out of love that she did it. And that sort of realization moment i think is also just brilliant i just want to point that out yeah yeah you're right i mean it's a somewhat symbiotic relationship that they have to be able to work together and kind of benefit off of each other whereas you know the men are proud stubborn and they yeah they're they're two sides of the same coin they're they're both one of the exact same thing exactly and that's i think that's what's so interesting about that happen henry and florence and laura both are as you've said both opposite side you know the, the white side and the and the black side of the same experience and Florence and Laura are able to build that bridge yeah. where Henry just can't do it. Henry can't stop exerting his position over yeah. half. He just can't quit. And I, I think that as far as the perspectives go, we get to see Pappy's racism from so many different perspectives. And the reaction to Pappy's racism says so much because I don't think, I don't think Henry sees himself as a racist. No. He knows that his father is. But Henry's, like, really, like, impl- uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, uh, I don't know the way to, I'm, I'm looking to phrase it, but his... his complicit? Yeah, complicit. Thank you. There, there we go. His he, complicit racism of indulging Pappy when he, does, he knows yeah. Pappy is wrong. He doesn't want to rock the boat. Exactly. Yeah. His refusal to do the right thing to keep the equilibrium in his life makes him a terrible man. He's mm-hmm. a bad person, and he cannot see it. And uh, it really is... Uh, that those multiple perspectives that I think help highlight that. Well, and Jamie is only uh, only a marginally better person. I mean, I like Jamie a lot, and I oh, it took her. a near death experience for him to get over yeah. his own racial baggage, and, and that he under also you see that the uh, the sort of convenience of his ability to choose when to care about it. That he's got the option when to be involved and when not to be involved. He can just bug out of Mississippi whenever he wants to and go somewhere else mm-hmm. and it not be his problem any longer. Well, and I think those issues speak more to his, his alcoholism and his True. post-traumatic stress than they do you know, his, his uh, racial uh, – his feelings of racial superiority. Mm-hmm. But you're absolutely right. I mean, Jamie feels perfectly content to rock the boat because he's got a fucking escape ticket anytime he wants Yeah, to. he can rock the boat as long as he wants to. Because yeah. it wants doesn't to... affect him. And once he stops, it's fine, whatever. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, uh, again, as we are talking about perspectives, I think that's why Hap is so uncomfortable. Obviously, he doesn't, Hap, Hap hates to see Roncel, like, clearly, like, indulging a, a little bit of a drinking problem. What Hap really doesn't like is he knows that Jamie's going to be trouble. He yeah. knows this white guy causing trouble. If they get into shit, it's going to fall back on Roncel. It's not going right. to fall back on Jamie. And again, it's those perspectives that D. Reese gives us that make all of these multi-leveled relationships make so much sense. Ain't no point in fighting them. They always win. Oh, man, mm-hmm. that, that line. Fuck, dude. <sighs> that was rough. Yeah. I, there's a lot of rough stuff in this movie, though. Yeah, yeah. And, and so as we move on to the biggie on the eye chart, I think, which is race. I mean, it absolutely does play with sort of uh, uh, poverty. It absolutely does play with gender politics uh, in, in very, very interesting and powerful ways. But I think fundamentally the film is about race relationships. Well, and I, I think to before we navigate into that, though, I think 
being a black woman, what D. Reese gives us is a really intersectional film. Yes. It's yeah. a film that interrogates race and gender at the same time with equal measure. But you're right. I mean, race is the big E on the I chart, but it is so tied to the gender politics of this this film. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, that, that it just really kind of never stops blowing your mind, honestly. Yeah, well, in the first place I want to approach it is uh, in terms of military service. Uh, the, the fact that there is a, a strange way in which the Army became, not just the Army, the armed services in general, became the sort of uh, way in which uh, integration uh, was made possible just because it was, a, it was a very, very difficult and tough decision to make in order to allow African Americans to serve you know, on the battlefield and serve as officers and those kind of things. But that it, it became something of a social microcosm, which opened up some of the possible doors historically to have some of those racial tensions relieved, not all of. But um, some of them. It opened the door. Well, I've you, I've heard it said, uh, and I, you know, you, you this point can be debated, but I've heard it said that often the American armed services often are kind of the gate opener to uh, social progress a lot of the time, whether it be uh, LGBT service or uh, you know uh, racial equity in service, um, because they'll take anybody. A lot of the times, the army or the armed services will say, "Fuck it, if you want in, you welcome aboard." Because of that attitude, they very often lead the charge sometimes, which is weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't think of the armed services yeah. as a progressive institution, but right. uh, World War II especially and Vietnam after that really started to force integration. Right. Obviously, the, the services were still segregated during World War II, but it opened up positions to, to black men that had not been open yet. Right, and so it's an opportunity for advancement, obviously, for African Americans as they return uh, home. And however, however, <laughs> however, uh, as Ron Sell sees, it didn't matter. Yeah. yeah, it didn't matter. And that forced integration does do some things, as we see in Jamie's story, where he realizes his life has been saved by an African American. Yeah, by a Tuskegee Airman. You know, which is great. Um, that, you know, he sees that kind of stuff. It's tragic that it takes something like that. But there, there's a way in which some of those perspectives do there, – there's no time for that kind of prejudice and thinking when people are shooting at you. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so there, there is something that goes on there that is a somewhat of an untold story because, you know, there is a weird way ideologically in, in the ways in which Hollywood makes stories that they don't, they don't tend to really – lean into that too much and i and i appreciate that about this film i think um this idea that you know there are obviously massive problems you know fundamentally with uh, what's going on in armed services and imperial wars and those kind of things but at the same time there is a weird way in which becomes an incubator for for forced camaraderie yeah forced camaraderie yeah yeah again and that was I, I can't remember where i heard that point made but it was referring to uh you know earlier in 2017 when uh the uh Commander-in-chief of the armed forces decided that he was not going to allow trans people to serve anymore. And the armed services were like, no, we're not going to do that, homie, uh, because it's working out great for us, honestly. Um, and, and I think that does speak to the same issue that we're talking about is it weirdly does become a microcosm for making people of different life experiences spend time together and get to know one another. Right. Um, the scene uh, that I think really directly ties to what we're talking about is uh, shortly after Ron Sell gets back home to Mississippi and is at the general store. And this is the first time he meets Henry and Pap. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or uh, Henry and Pappy, sorry. I said Pap. I squished Hap <laughs> and Pappy together in my brain. Um, that scene is a bummer. And it, it comes back to uh, Henry's com- 
complacency with his father's behavior, right? Because right. he could stand up in that moment. Yeah. Because he knows he knows Ronsell's right. Yeah. He knows that Ronsell is right. Yeah. You can see it in Jason Clark's performance, and uh, it, it is so. Fr- I mean, again, this is not the first film to touch on this. Uh, this has been touched on a lot of films, but there's a reason that there was a bunch of black servicemen who decided to stay in Europe after World War II. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, they just got treated way, especially in France. Uh, I don't. Hey, guys. Yeah. Way, to, blame, way, yeah. way to be a proud expat. Yeah. Can't, yeah. can't blame them. Because it, and it really, you don't, I can't think of the last movie I saw that touched on this, though, right? The, yeah, I was trying to think of that, and I, and I can't. I mean, you see a lot of films about, uh, especially Vietnam, and people yeah. coming back and they're and not, you know, feeling like what they did didn't matter. But to really specifically focus in on segregation in, in the 40s and 50s and how that uh, followed uh, servicemen back home after World War II, I can't remember the last film that I saw that tackled that issue. Yeah. I can't think of one. I can't, yeah. Yeah, and really, I mean, just the, the performance that, uh, the, oh my gosh, I forgot his name again, the guy that plays Ron Sell, Jason Mitchell. The performance that Jason Mitchell gives in all of those scenes where he is forced to come face to face with the fact that his service is not respected by these white people yeah. is just absolutely shattering because yeah. he, he plays it. It's a very easy emotion to play too big. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think he does it in such a way that like shows you that anger, but also shows you the heartbreak that that anger that, that causes that anger yeah. that, you know, he had to bury a lot of friends over there and nobody seems to give a shit. Yeah, it's it's a rough time, and of course, then the uh, the, the continued prevalence of, it, despite the fact that you might be in a place that is a bit more progressive, that you're experiencing something more of something more of an equitable relationship. Was not say that the Black Panthers of the uh, of the uh, 876 tank division or whatever it is, no. um, you know, had complete equal treatment. They did. Oh not. hell no, no, yeah, they they were not treated. You know, the the black fighters in World War II. Focused uh, or faced a lot of racism uh, from their their white commanding officers, but they had better conditions than you might have in the deep south. And then to return to the deep south and to find those institutions in place, and to see that uh, in those situations it is very very difficult. And this is an interesting thing that I, I think about in terms of just the way in which people of like minds tend to glom together, mm-hmm. and then they find themselves in the situation in which they're viewpoint is no longer the majority viewpoint and that's when the sparks fly and uh and that, that i mean that's what sort of brings things to a head uh with the kkk um bit of interaction that happens at the end that you know he's just of a set of values that do not mesh well with south mississippi in the 1940s late 1940s at this point early 50s well and i think what is so effective is, is that what d reese does and you know her co-screenwriter what what the film does with those relationships is it interrogates the presumed American moral superiority, right? Uh, because there is this narrative that, uh, oh, well, we helped beat fascism. We were the good guys, right? Well, no, because the KKK was still operating uh, in full force uh, during that war and after that war. So it really does force uh, you as a viewer while you're watching Mudbound to interrogate the, the presumed narrative that we were the good guys. <sighs> Well, yeah. and what's, what's, we were the good guys by accident. What's crazy is my niece watches this film with me, mm-hmm. and uh, she does not have a lot of experience or understanding historically. She doesn't have a lot of historical memory um, at all. And she goes, this isn't the Civil War, right? And I said, no, this is World War II. Mm-hmm. And she goes, how is this still happening? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, honey, it's still happening. Yeah. yeah. But uh, also, this happened 
all the time then yeah. and continue to happen. And, and, and there is this weird sort of bizarre way in which we fail to realize that these institutions, you know, these fascist structures um, have been very, very part of the uh, – deep part of the fabric of American society for a long time. And they're not going away anytime soon. You know what it makes me think of is uh, weirdly the line in The Blair Witch Project the, uh, about – well, it's, uh, it's – you know, it's so hard to get lost anymore. No, it's not. No. Uh, you, yeah, just because uh, there's the internet in 1999, or in this case, just because there's you know telephones and radio waves, you get far enough out from civilization, the rules start to matter less and less. The, yeah. the, the law, the codified rules start to matter less and less. And again, the codified rules in this world still uphold these institutions. Right. But in uh, urban centers, there is at least, you know, you can't go around attacking people with impunity. You get far enough out of a city... It's very hard to keep people from hurting one another. Uh, there's a reason that uh, rural areas have higher murder rates per capita. It's really easy to put somebody in a position where they can't get to help, uh, as mm-hmm. we see in the climax of this film. And, uh, yeah, it, you don't have to go very far to get uh, away from help, which uh, is very unfortunate. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's an interesting, interesting meditation on race. Uh, because of those reasons. Um, I want to move on, though, and ask another question, and it's something we sort of touched on uh, last time that we were together talking about Nia the Hunter over my cell phone. Uh, <laughs> I will work. Did we record that episode on Dustin's cell phone? I think so. I had no idea. Yeah, voice memos. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. yeah I, State of the art. Never would have guessed. Uh-huh. <laughs> you guys suck so much. Anyway. Anyway, your good point. My, 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 <laughs> I don't know if it's a good point. <laughs> your good question. Uh, is, is that this... There's this idea that is being wrestled with, and I, I read a recent IndieWire article um, that sort of was touching on the subject, is that the reason why we tend to honor directors, you know, obviously it's because of uh, their cachet, because of just the time and the films they've made, that sometimes a director honors, especially in terms of massive awards, has something to do with being due after having sort of a body of work and have maybe less to do with the individual film than the sort of films that yeah. preceded. There's that, which is obviously very, very uh, oriented towards men, but also that... F- Women have a different perspective in the way that they fundamentally direct a film, that there is a difference in female direction as opposed to masculine direction uh, looking at a film. And as I was looking at this particular movie, I was thinking to myself, this is very much a woman's film because it refuses to really play too long with uh, you know trying to justify behaviors uh, to get too far on the inside. That when 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 Harry or Henry is talking about what's going on in his head, he's not dealing with the issues in particular that are um, that might be bothersome to us, but they are the issues that are bothersome to him, that there's, yeah. a, there's a certain empathy that is also not excusing those sorts of bad behaviors, that we look inside Laura's head and the things that bother her, and, uh, but they may not necessarily be all the things that are going on in her world that are bothering us, and the ways in which we look into uh, the lives of Florence, the lives of Had, and the lives of Roncel, that it, 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 it is very, very internally focused with a bit more empathy that you might see if you were looking at the same kind of film directed by a man, which got me thinking about uh, a similar film. It's going to end up being my Elsa's or whatever, but I'll go ahead and name it now. It's Legends of the Fall, a Brad Pitt film yeah. that I kept thinking about 
uh, watching this movie. Um, also because Jamie is doing a weird kind of Brad Pitt impersonation somewhat throughout, I mean, the, yeah. throughout G- the film. Garrett Hedlund's got a, a bit of a Brad Pitt thing it, going on. There's that going on, but this going off to war and this sort of love triangle and brothers mm-hmm. and, and uh, farms and uh, so and it's got troubled Native American relationships and it doesn't really... It, all it Legends does, of the Fall. Legends of the Fall does, yeah. And it does this thing in which it just sort of makes this sort of differential hero as a film. Uh, of Brad Pitt's character, which uh, again sort of falls in that sort of weird, led, um, excuse me, dances with wolf syndrome, you know, the one white savior uh, yeah. kind of thing that's going on with it. And this film doesn't do that. It just simply it humanizes the character without excusing them. And it seems to me that masculine directors, if they humanize any character, they have to her- her- heroicize them. Does that make sense? That there's a, there's okay. a difference in perspective there. And I don't know if I'm onto something or not. But that is something I'm beginning to th- try to think about and try to pick up on. Well, I, I'm, I'm, when you say human, you mean presenting these kind of characters who have human flaws that right. they're. When we think so much of protagonists, you know, we may be able to relate on some level, but overall they're generally very likable. Yeah. But here we're presenting with characters who are very much us in, in that they all have flaws. Sometimes, you know, Carrie Mulligan's moves are they're always in her maybe in her best interests which can paint her as either negative or positive but she's just being human right, right? and I, I, I don't but know. they don't make her heroic necessarily her, yeah, yeah yeah no yeah uh, and I, I think of maybe somebody like Denzel in uh, He Got Game right mm-hmm. who's very humanized in that same way he's kind of a protagonist but he's not the hero in the traditional sense is that kind of what you're thinking? Yeah, sort of. Um, and I think there's a, there's a way in which D. Reese seems to approach this material that does not try to uh, again cast them in those heroic kinds of lights. And the one kind of the one character who we don't ever get any voiceover from is Pappy. Yeah, because that is clearly our villain, and there is no empathy or sympathy Correct. there. And I, I'm, I'm fine with that. But uh, anyway, I was just trying to think about what, 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 what a woman's perspective looks like in terms of film and to start thinking about what great direction looks like, how we've gendered that. Yeah. And uh, maybe that great direction has other looks as well. And that part of our the reason why we see this sort of dearth of nominees uh, at the Golden Globes, as uh, was pointed out very um, uh, slyly by Natalie Portman very recently, that uh, is because we tend to value a masculine approach. Um, that the Rivera, uh, you know, approach with the massive camera moves and the ways in which those characters are sort of framed, um, that maybe that's part of why that um, bias remains. Well, I, I think maybe let's let's take another nominee. Let's look at a couple of other case studies from the Golden Globes. Sure. Let's put that. Okay. So like, let's. There's only one film that was nominated directed by a woman. That's Lady Bird. Mm-hmm. I think that fall. I mean, yeah. Lady Bird herself is very human, right? She's you yeah. Know, She's got her flaws. She's got her personality. And she's fun, but she's also – there are things like, ah, why would you do – you know, there are those kind of moments. And I think that maybe similar to what you're saying about the performances here and the characters here. Yeah. And and I guess that another possible nominee that wasn't nominated, but um, uh, Sofia Coppola's uh, The Beguiled. Beguiled. You know, would be another example there. And uh, it is uh, again, uh, you, you know, you you feel some sympathy even for Colin Farrell in yeah. that movie, you know, uh, who is pretty much a villain. But at the same, t- and you feel you feel sympathy for Kirsten Dunst, even though she is uh, duplicitous in some ways. Yeah. It, it, it and and none of them are just all that great. Even though Nicole Kidman is clearly the sort of heroic character, 
of the film or the main yeah. protagonist, she is also quite flawed, um, but also sort of lovingly framed in a way that's interesting to me. Now, now let's contrast this with a movie that Dalton can also talk about. Let's say Shape of Water. I, I've seen all of these movies that were. Did talking. you see the Beguiled? No, I didn't see Beguiled. I saw Lady Bird. Oh, okay. um, I, I guess what I've been thinking about because I have I've had my thinking face yeah. on. What I wanted to say to, to the point that I think you're getting at, Dustin, I, I think you have a point, but at the same time, I think we, you need to be care- we need to be careful because, you know, saying that uh, female direction has a, a sort of empathy that male direction is lacking is its own kind of problematic take, sure, right? Yeah, we don't want to get too binary exactly. about that. Yeah, and, and and I, I agree with that. And, and what I would say to that is not that necessarily, you know, female directors uh, inherently understand empathy uh, better because again that's you know a pedestal is just a different kind of cage man but I, I think that just speaks to the importance of democratizing film right? right because the more perspectives you get making films the better movies you get the better ideas you get because everybody is different everybody right. has their own take regardless of whether or not i mean Ava DuVernay's got a different take than d reese has than right. than has uh sofia coppola than has um oh my god uh, the director of Lady Bird. Greta Gerwig. Thank you. Then has Greta Gerwig, right? Just because they're all sure. women, just because you know, are two white women, two black women, those are four p- different human beings with different thoughts and feelings and experiences on these stories, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I get what you're saying, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it does show that the, the doors have been locked for too long, and having the same perspectives, mostly white dudes, telling other white dudes' stories is going to create a feedback loop. Right. And I think that's the bigger issue, is the feedback and loop. And we measure excellence in terms of typically, again, stere- of this same feedback stereotypically loop. sort of masculine traits or, um, you know, uh, tells in, in, the, in, the, in their approach and, to film. And I do think what you're getting at is that dudes are saddled, men are saddled with the cultural baggage of masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. And the stories they tell engage with that. Yes. Whether they engage with it smartly or stupidly is irrelevant. They are trapped by the the culture that they grew up in, right? And, and I think that is the point that that is. I think you're actually getting at, uh, if you don't mind me speaking for you. I'm no, just, no, I'm just trying to. I think because I like what you're saying, but I think it's we got to get at what we're talking about very carefully right. without getting too binary and making assumptions about you know Every- some inherent. You know, feminine um, wisdom that is lost. Yeah, we don't want to get it. We don't want to get essentialist with this at all. Exactly. Yeah, I don't want that. And I know, no, you don't. That's why I'm, I'm saying what I'm saying. But I, I think what happens is everybody's got their cultural baggage, right? And whether you know, Mudbound is a story that deals with masculinity from just like we talked about Charles Lawton being an American dealing or uh, not being a Brit dealing with America. Mm-hmm. Dee Reese is a is a woman dealing with a lot of masculine issues, which are war trauma which again women understand ptsd and whether you know women fought uh and well i mean there are plenty of women combatants in world war ii sure those stories don't get as told as often but to see somebody to see a woman engage with uh, a story of a soldier returning home from world war ii with post-traumatic stress that is an interesting take right that is something we haven't seen a whole lot is the way that um, d reese uh, as a woman in our society has a perspective on trauma taking it to uh, a perspective that is considered a male perspective on trauma, that's what's interesting, right? Right. Is getting different perspectives on stories we tell each other all the time. We've told each other, as a human race, we've told each other a lot of stories about coming home from World War II. How many times has a black American woman got to tell that story? And that is what's important about what you're talking about. Isn't, it's not, it, it isn't that D. Reese as a woman has some sort of inherent 
secret knowledge of empathy. It's that she's telling a story we've, we have been told before, and it's a perspective that we haven't heard tell that story. Well, and she does so in telling that, again, multi-perspectively, right? Mm-hmm. She does so telling that story communally as opposed to a, man, uh, a male director who would approach that as the heroic arc of this sort of individual. You can see a, a – and, and again, and now that we don't want to get essentialist or, you know, he, Here is what I will say. What I think you're saying is you can see the Mel Gibson version of Mudbound. Yeah. Which is just a story about Jamie. Mm-hmm. Right, and I think that's what you're getting. Or just at. a story about Ron Sill. I mean, he just as easily true. could have been. You could have cut all the other characters and just made it about one of these two veterans. When in reality, the story is much more interesting when looking at their families. Right, yeah. and that's why. And again, that's that sort of excellence of interweaving that doesn't get it as recognized as the massive battle scenes mm-hmm. and the huge action set pieces and uh, the sort of um, generaling a, a huge uh, staff of uh, various. Uh, personnel as you're producing your film that's what gets recognized as opposed to these deeply personal stories in which uh as a director uh she evinces these performances that are nuanced that are touching that are very very uh, again um internal not so much external and uh, to weave those things into a story is a different skill set than typically gets honored and that skill set itself skews a little female is what i'm trying to suggest and I think the reason that there is some accuracy in what you're suggesting is because the doors to directing have been locked to women for right. so long, when uh, women do have the chance to direct movies like this, they understand what it's like to be a character in this story that gets ignored. Yeah. So they, uh, there might be an impetus to tell the story of the ignored character. And that, that, I think that might be why you're feeling what you're feeling. Does that make sense? Maybe, yeah. And then again, I just we, we just. But I like the point you're making. I think it's just it's a point we have to be very careful about being three white guys. I want to just change the gauges that we're using for excellence. Yes, that, that, yeah. I think the gauges that we use for excellence to say this is an excellently directed film, those uh, criteria, whatever they happen to be, tend to be things that um, are wrapped up in that male feedback loop. Ma- male male feedback loop, and that there are other excellences. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, excellencies, I guess, um, that we could emphasize as well. And I think that might be a way towards some greater parity in um, recognizing uh, the great achievements of women. And so th- those – I've been clicking around with this for a minute now. So anyway, that's what I'm trying to say, sort of, kind of, maybe. Yeah, uh, no, I, I, I feel you. As a white dude who has no business talking about this at all. Correct. Correct. And that's that's why I think yeah. uh, we needed to uh, jump in. But I, I like what you're saying. And again, Arthur, I, I think your, your points are well made too that uh, – as you point out, there are a lot of movies that we see, not just, you know, you mentioned He Got Game, but also, you know, 2017 films directed by women. I, I think there are a lot of filmmakers who are are doing just that, right, are highlighting that you can be an interesting and good person who's also, you know, fucks up a lot, right? Yeah. And um, I, I think there is something to that, that in that male feedback loop of filmmaking, there is a tendency to... Uh, make heroes out of anybody who does the right thing, even if they're still a bad person at the end of the day. Yeah. So, all right. Well, dear listener, I think we probably ought to put a pin in this conversation. It was good. I liked it. We're having a good time, and we'd love to hear what you have to say about these things. Um, I have some unformed thoughts, clearly. Um, help me form them better. Um, you can do that via social media, yeah. um, and uh, we can keep that conversation going. What was that like, IndieWire article? Do you remember, just so we can point listeners that way? It's on my Twitter. Was that the is the best directors category outdated or something? Yeah, something like that. Um, this this idea that the way in which we do best direction uh, mm-hmm. is, um, again, we, we, we I, evaluate those in sort of male terms, and that 
may not be as useful as it could be. I'm going to have to go find that article. I keep trying really to read it at work, but uh, IndieWire is blocked. Oh, so I can't. Bummer. There's like half half of these entertainment websites I can't get to, and then like half I can. So it's really frustrating. Sadness. I've yeah. got a screen crush, but I can't get the screen rant. That's so weird. Well, screen rant. I'm not going to spare screen rant on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Sorry, screen rant. Example. Uh, just an example. Me. Example. Woo! I, I can go to Variety, but I can't go to The Hollywood Reporter. Well, hey, let's let's move on as we are running long today, and I love it. Let's let's make a verdict about this film. Shelf or trash, Elster instead. I think we can go and just assume we're all saying shelf. What is your Elster instead, Arthur? Uh, I am going to look at that real quick because I forgot. <laughs> I, uh, you threw me off by not letting me shelf it. So uh, I'm going to say else. You watch this with uh, – I think uh, you watch this with In the Heat of the Night. I think this would pair nice. very well with that. I, I, I love that movie quite a bit. I think it's a great uh, – Arthur, what do they call Sidney Portier up north? They call him Mr. Tibbs. Okay. Slap. Um, I also want to watch uh, – I want to watch Forrest Gump with this. I, I, I like Forrest Gump here. Um, you know, okay. With, uh, with uh, Zemeckis' uh, messy politics. I, uh, but I think it's a fun pair because of the generational it's thing. So, no, it's so fascinating. Yeah. No, uh, it, we, we could talk – man, we got to talk about Forrest Gump We will. Yeah. I think it might come up at some point this year. I think it will. And we'll give thanks for that. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I really – and part of it's just – the setting, obviously, we're in mm-hmm. you know Georgia and all that kind of that kind of fun stuff in Mississippi, Alabama. Those those things all ring true there, um, but also just the generational aspect of it. That uh, telling that story over decades, mm-hmm. I, I love. That's a that's a uh, big hit for me when yeah. that happens. I'm right there with you. Uh, which leads me to my next pick, and that is Mr. Holland's Opus. Uh, Hell which, yeah! Uh, Richard Dreyfuss telling his story, and, and it is beautiful and moving. And, it's a good movie, and, man. Yeah, it's great. It, and, it's one it, of those it, movies that pe- gets forgot about because it's such a sweet film. Yeah, smalty. It's, and, it's good, though. Oh, yeah, it's got so much heart, and uh, it's kind of fun. And, and it's doing that same thing with the generation, and I, I, I like that, especially if it's done well. And so those would be my uh, recommends. All right, thank you very much for that. What are your recommends, uh, Mr. Dalton Stewart? Well, uh, first of all, um, yeah, obviously it's on the shelf, as you mentioned. It, that's where it's ending up. Uh, first and foremost, uh, we didn't talk a lot about um, the climactic moment of racial violence that happens in this film. And honestly, I'm glad we didn't because it's it would have been uh, really unpleasant to talk about. Uh, but it is an important piece of this film. And uh, I, I think if you want to see... Uh, another film that wrestles with that uh, in a really interesting way. You got to check out uh, Ryan Coogler's directorial debut, Fruitvale Station, which, uh, as we talked about earlier, shares a cinematographer with Mudbound. Um, Fruitvale Station is such an incredible film, and I have not been able to bring myself to watch it since I saw it in theaters the, what, 2015? Whatever year that film came out. Um, but it, much like Mudbound, takes a moment of racial violence and says there is so much story and so much that led up to this moment because that was a person's life that got impacted by people's inability to just not be assholes, to just treat each other like people. Um, And every moment of violence um, ruins lives. And it's important to look at what those lives looked like before that moment. Um, so, and again, we get a, a happier ending with Mudbound than we get with Fruitvale Station. Um, but they are both, you know, one, one is a true story. One is a, an adaptation of a novel, but they are both engaging with a, an act of violence, um, and the ramifications thereof. And, uh, again, just a wonderful film, uh, and a film that, as far as I know, introduced me to Michael B. Jordan. Cause yeah, I hadn't watched The Wire yet when I saw Fruitvale Station, so... Yeah, go watch. If you have not caught up with Fruitvale Station yet, you gotta go check it. Really? 
really what? You hadn't seen The Wire before Fruitvale? Yeah. No, I hadn't. I hadn't caught up with it because uh, it was would have been like that same year, I think. Oh. Um, hmm. Because I watched, I first started watching The Wire for a class at UCO. Okay. Um, and I know Fruitvale came out while I was still in college, still in undergrad. Yeah. So um, okay. it would have been around the same time, but yeah. I'm pretty sure that I, I caught Fruitvale before I started watching The Wire. Okay. Um, up next, another multi-generational story, one that is actively more funny. Um, although, you know, Mudbound's got a good sense of humor, but uh, this is definitely a comedy. It's the Royal Tenant Bonds. Um, I, I was trying to think, what is one of my favorite, like, stories of family? And that's it's such a good one. It, it's probably um, my favorite film from, oh, my God. That year it was made. No. Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson. Thank you, oh. Arthur. I, you often hear it said that everybody's favorite Wes Anderson movie is the first Wes Anderson movie they saw. Uh, and for me, it is Royal Tenant Bonds. I, I love that movie a lot. Um, and, again, I think... It engages with uh, family in some very interesting ways and in some ways that it shares with Mudbound, especially. Obviously, Royal is not nearly as evil as Pappy, but he's actively a bad dude. And the way that film engages with uh, loving somebody who's not a good person uh, is really interesting. And, and finally, you know what? We beat up a lot on David Ayer uh, the last month because of Bright. I'm going to go ahead and say you should check out Fury. Uh, we, are, we did just yeah. talk about masculine perspectives on World War II and how we've seen a thousand of them. But Fury's really good. Um, and I think it's kind of underrated uh, because it is a very conventional film. But I think what it does with... Um, it's a big budget action war movie that engages with uh, humanity's inhumanity to to other people uh, in really interesting ways. The way that war just turns people into monsters just so they can get out of it uh, is really interesting. And it's about a tank crew. Um, and it's got Brad Pitt, who we mentioned earlier, and John Barenthal, who gives an amazing performance, and Shia LaBeouf, who is Shia LaBeouf. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really good film that I think is kind of underrated. And um, I just thought about it in one of those scenes where, um, where Ron Sell's riding around the tank and has to bail out. It really made me mm. uh, think of Fury. And, uh, man... That uh, the movie's great, and uh, David Ayer can, in fact, make good movies. So I, I wanted to give that a little bit of love. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dollinsford. Of course, I am shelving as well. And what I would say is I do want to recommend Legends of the Fall because I do think it's uh, the same kind of story clearly being told differently. And uh, I think there is an interesting ideological sort of conversation uh, to have with it. Then I want to recommend two films directed by women, um, Ava DuVernay's uh, Selma I want to recommend, which I think also interestingly makes a, a, again, formal choice that you hardly ever see Martin Luther King Jr. filmed from in front. It's almost always from behind or from the side, and there is this greater emphasis, again, on his cohorts. Um, that are putting together the march there in Selma. And so I think there's something going on there, in, even in terms of the biography, hagiography, mm -hmm. that you might experience from time to time. Selma, so I need to rewatch it, though. Selma is I, super good. I didn't notice that choice uh, the last time I watched it, so yeah. I'll have to check that out. The opening shot is a back of his head. Yeah. Uh, no, no, you're right. I mean, I'm thinking about the opening, and you're right. I got, it. man, oh, what a good movie. And it did it, and the, 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 overall, the film tends not to frame him directly from the front until he gets to the steps when he's giving the speech mm -hmm. there. Um, and so th I, I think it's an interesting choice, and uh, I think there's things to be said about that. Lastly, I want to re recommend Lizzie Borden's um, Born in Flames again. Um, I've mentioned this film before. It is a 80s uh, sort of uh, no-fi, uh, no-wave film uh, that is about a bunch of women of color and of various sexual preferences 
taken over the world and uh, in sort of a terroristic kind of way. It is after a socialistic sort of revolution has happened in the United States is the way it's set up. I don't remember you mentioning this movie before, but it sounds amazing. It is incredible. The quality is never great when you find it because it's shot kind of on video. Well, and it's probably hard to and it's The a, transfers are all probably beat to hell. little hard to find, but uh, it is a great, great film. It does have an, a closing scene that of terrorism that will be reminiscent of other things that have happened later in American history, and so it doesn't age real well, mm-hmm. but in terms of just what it's doing and uh, letting women fight the power, it's kind of brilliant, and uh, it is a uh, joyride of a film, uh, it, it, up to that point or beyond, depending on your own personal mileage uh, regarding some of that imagery. So I recommend it highly. But there you go, dear listener. That's our conversation about Mudbound. We dug it, and uh, we want you to dig it as well. Check it out and listen to our words and tell us what you think. Also, we got to tell you about what's happening next. Next, next, immediately next, we're going to have a special episode of the Good Trash Honor Cast in uh, which we are going to give our rankings of 2017 release uh, releases, our favorite films from 2017. That's right. We don't get to do this for a living, which means it takes us a little bit longer to prep our year in review. Uh, it is time in the last week of January 2018 for the Good Trash Genre cast to take a look back at the films of 2017. Um, I'm excited. I am. It's going to be a fun discussion. We're going to talk about the highs, the lows, the the hidden gems, and the guilty pleasures. It'll be a good time. And uh, all those weird foreign international weird movies that Dustin watched the last week. Uh, yeah, I watched a bunch of those. Uh, so lots of that will be coming up very, very soon, dear listener. You keep uh, wa- watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Life is a teacher. Time is a healer. And I'm a believer. Thanks for tuning in to the Good Trash Genrecast. The Good Trash Genrecast is a production of Good Trash Media. For more info on all things Good Trash, head on over to goodtrashmedia.com. Our intro music is a supercut of a couple of film clips edited by our own Arthur Gordon, featuring the music of the Wonder Woman score uh, by Junkie XL and Hans Zimmer. And our outro music this week is Mighty River by Mary J. Blige. No lines in the sun. I'm on your side. Invisible. No color lies. It's time we put on. Says time tells no lies. It keeps changing and ticking and moving, then passes by. But if you're lucky, it will be kind, like a river flowing through time. Going upstream, cutting through rocks, cause it never gives up. So full of life, thick with like time, that it washed away the pain from yesterday. Hope of forgiveness, he waters the soul. Our blood is red, we're not so different. 
Cause underneath my skin, we're identical. 